We are going to be in Ephesians. And just so everyone knows, our, uh, the plumber is coming out next, uh, this coming Thursday. It is going to be rectifying our unfortunate situation. <laughs> so we will uh, be once again living in the 20th century. We did have somebody recommend that we have an outhouse outside. but <laughs> Now, I'm okay with that. I, I, I can do that, but... <laughs> So anyway, so, well, let's go ahead and break into this. This is part two of uh, our initial sermon in Ephesians. And our, our goal as we walk through Ephesians is that we would become more like Christ and understand our life in Christ. That's what our goal is. And so last, uh, two weeks ago, when we met in person, we talked about the first three verses of Ephesians and what it means that God has chosen us to be uh, his children. We talked about what that word means and what the implications of that mean. And then when we met online, what we did was we took a few other verses that tied into that to, ba to better explain what all that means. And one of the things that we talked about was that as we talk about concepts like chosen or election or predestination, there are different ways to approach it. One is you can ignore it. You can ignore those passages exist. But if you ignore those passages exist and those concepts exist, you're going to be ignoring huge pieces of Scripture. And so that's not a, that's not a, a, a justifiable response to a lack of understanding or an, a lack of acceptance of God's Word. So that's the first thing. The second is that the second approach is to explain away words and what they mean. But that's not a good approach either. Words mean what they mean. They have very specific meanings. And so we need to use those. Now, some would argue that since this letter was written in the first century, Paul obviously had a different mentality, uh, a different scope that he was looking through uh, as he was writing this. But the reality is, is that the concepts that Paul is writing about are not foreign to first century readers. They are, they are contained throughout all of Scripture. And that's what we talked about during our online study, was how that this is nothing new, that this is something that was evident even in the Old Testament. So I want to expand on that this morning by walking through, beginning in verse 5, and then moving through verse 10. So that's where we're going to be this morning as we begin. Uh, and instead of this week having like break, breaking up points and stuff like that, what I'd like to do is just walk through the text because Paul has ordered it in such a way that it allows us just to tease out each phrase. Okay. Now, I, I, before I pray, I, I want to make, make this statement. Now, I've been here a little over six years now. Is that right? Yeah. Something like that. Okay, it's close. Anyway, I've been here a little over six years, and you all know that this is a common topic for me to discuss, and I mentioned that in our first sermon. And I told you that while I do enjoy this subject, because I enjoy theology in general, I don't preach on this subject often or bring it up often just because it's my pet theology or it's my pet project. I bring it up because it's in Scripture everywhere, and you can't get around it. And Ephesians is one of those stout texts 
that explains theology in a very in-depth way, but not in the, the length that you would find in Romans and other texts. And so we've got to grasp this and we've got to wrestle with it. But what I want to tell you is that if you are struggling with this, even after six years, if you are struggling with this theology, that's okay. That's okay. And the reason I say that is that the, the counter proposal to this text, or not to this text, but to this theology, uh, has inundated churches, especially Pentecostal and Baptist churches and non-denominational churches, uh, really since the beginning of the 20th century. And so what I am teaching and preaching about was the norm before the 20th century and has now gained new ground in the 21st century, starting around 2000, around 2000, around 2005. Uh, there has become, a, there is more of an interest and a commitment to go back to the way the text really should be understood rather than reading in our own presuppositions and our misunderstandings. So if you are concerned or if you struggle with this, don't fret over it. It's not anything to fret over, but it's also not something that we need to ignore. It's something that we need to wrestle with and that we pray that the Lord would, um, would enlighten us on, would reveal to us his truth. And what was interesting, uh, just to kind of give you a, a, a background on this, is at my previous church, uh, I was doing a Bible study, and this subject came up. Now, just so you know, my previous church, like this church uh, before me, uh, did not preach on or teach on election and predestination. That was not a cornerstone of the, of the theology of the church. In fact, it was, it was avoided at all costs. Those types of discussions were, were not fun to have because we don't like those terms. We don't like the idea of not being in control. And so when I approached these texts, when I was teaching them this new, and I put that in quotes because it's not a new theology, it was just new to them, there was a lot of concern. There was a lot of concern. And one individual who I love dearly, uh, was, uh, just loved the Word, uh, was very well versed in her, in her Word, um, and uh, we, we, were, we were dear friends, and still are, still are dear friends. Um, she wanted to know more about this. And so I did what, what I do. I go back to my library, and I pull out every book that I have, and I say, here, read, right, read. And, uh, not the, and I was able to, to share more and talk more and stuff, but I gave her a text that I thought would uh, explain maybe in deeper detail and better maybe than I could, especially at that time, uh, more this theology. And she, she had my book for a while. I was getting concerned. Um, I mean, I put my name in there so she wouldn't steal it, but that's another story. Uh, but she, she came back a few weeks later, and she said, Chris, such a sweet, sweet individual. She said, I have, I've read all the sections you outlined. And she said, I have a much better 
understanding of what you're talking about. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, yes! You know, I mean, like, I'm pumping my fist and everything. And then she smiled at me and said, but I still don't agree with you. Uh, I was like, well, not everyone can be saved. That's what the Bible says. No, I did not say that. Um, and, but my, my, my point in telling you this is that even if we disagree, on, even on a pretty important text in theology, we can still worship together. This is not what I would call a tier one issue. This isn't Jesus is the Son of God issue or the Trinity or something like that. I would call this a tier one B issue, um, but it's not a tier one A issue, okay? And so I just want to give you that. And so if you are struggling with this, it's not something to get all worked up on. But I would ask that you would wrestle with it because I will argue that if you don't, if this is troublesome to you, then actually the remainder of Scripture doesn't make as much sense. But if you understand the theology as, I am, as I'm doing my best to explain, the rest of Scripture becomes more enlightened and it's easier to understand. It falls more in line with what God's doing. So I just want to share that with you. Let's pray, and then we're going to begin in verse 5. I'm going to reread verses 3 through 4, and then we're going to start from verse 5. So join me as I pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We ask that you would have mercy on us as we read your word, Lord. I pray that you would correct our understanding where we are misguided, Father. Father, I pray that you would correct my understanding of this text if I am misguided, um, Lord. And I, but I, I, I pray, Father, in, in all humility uh, that you would lead us and not, and not allow your word to return void, Father, but that it would be fruitful for us and help us to be more, uh, uh, more effective as we follow Christ in our lives and as we share the gospel. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is part two. Let me read again verses three through four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. We're going to pause right there. That was last week. And what we talked about is that before the foundation of the world, before God said, let there be light, He chose a group of individuals for all time, meaning from the beginning of time till the time that He returns, He chose a select group of individuals that would be saved and others that would stand condemned. That's what that phrase means. To understand it in any other way is to do theological gymnastics with the text. So if we're uncomfortable with that, the, 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 and, and, but let me be honest with you. There are many texts in Scripture that I'm uncomfortable with. I used to be very uncomfortable with this text. I did not like this text. And then the Lord convicted me, not of a different theology, but that if I don't like something in His Word, the problem isn't Him. 
The problem's me. So I need to get on board and I need to figure out because I couldn't do the theological gymnastics that others wanted me to do. I knew what it meant. I just didn't like it. I don't like people ordering for me at the China Buffet. I don't want people picking my salvation out for me. But that's what the text says. And so I had to really wrestle with this. And so if we're uncomfortable with this, the, the, what we don't do is just ignore it and move on and skip over it. What we do is we wrestle with it and we study it and we pray about it and we talk about it and we learn more about it. And eventually what ends up happening is, at least in my case, it was like a light bulb went off. I mean, it, 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 really, it was like a light bulb. And then I, was, I started seeing the rest of Scripture through this light, and it just made everything else make sense. It made Leviticus make sense. It made Numbers make sense. It made all those texts make more sense once I accepted that God's Word is God's Word and it's not changing. Let's begin now in verse 5 for our message this morning. In love, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 5 through 10. Okay, In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He has set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, the key word this morning is grace. That's the word we're going to kind of focus on. And I was really excited about preaching this two weeks ago. And then when the water stopped working, I was like, oh my goodness, i got to hold off another week. So I'm really excited about preaching this today. But I also know we don't have running water, so I'm going to have to get to it. So <laughs> in love, he predestined us. Let's start right there, okay? In love, he predestined us. Let's first look at the word predestined. I'm going to be real brief with this. This isn't going to be a, uh, a, a, a study on dictionary word, terminology and stuff, but the word predestined means predetermined. That's what it means, okay? When you think of destiny, all right, destiny, or if you're a fan of Back to the Future, density, you're my density. He got the word wrong, okay? But the word destiny is this idea that there is something ahead of us that has already been planned out, okay? That's what it means. So when somebody says you make your own destiny, that does not make sense. That doesn't make sense, okay? And here's why, okay? It doesn't make sense because the very concept of destiny means that it has been determined, that that is your, that this is your destiny, right? Now, it very well may be and absolutely is the fact that your actions will help that destiny play out. But destiny means that something is already predetermined, okay? That's the first thing. And so when he says, in love, he predestined us, it means that he has predetermined ahead of time 
God has dictated what has happened. In the game of chess, all right, I know I'm going all nerd on you, but just hang with me, okay? In the game of chess, I find this fantastic, okay? I am not a chess, you know, master, game master, whatever. What is that called? I don't know what it is. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert at chess, but I love math and I love the concept of chess. And I was reading on uh, statistics and chances and uh, how many how many different games you could have in the game of chess. And here's the thing, is that in 10 separate moves, five from the white side, five from the black side, so 10 separate moves, once you have made 10 separate moves, there is the opportunity for nearly 70 trillion unique games. And that's just with 10 moves. When you go to the complete game, the chances are that you could have 10 to the 120th different games. Folks, that is 10 with 120 zeros after it. Not even Elon Musk understands that number. All right? The reason I bring that up is that not even a supercomputer has enough time in all of its days to determine every single possible move that could take place. Yet still, our God knows exactly every single move. Because He predetermined it. He ordained it. So it says, in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In the beginning, before all things were created, God chose, God elected, and God predetermined who would be adopted. And when he says us, remember he's writing to the saints. He's not writing to the whole world, he's writing to the saints. He predetermined who would be adopted as his sons. And we know that word adoption means that we are his children. Everybody on the same page? Now, he did not do this just for kicks and giggles. He did not do this out of some sort of overlord plan, right? It says he did it in love. It was out of love. Now, you might say, why does that make any difference? Look at all the sin that is in our lives. The fact that God would predetermine, elect, or choose any one of us is evidence of God's love. It is absolutely, I mean, seriously, parents or grandparents, anybody who's got a kid, reminisce just for a moment on your child's behavior yesterday. Okay? And you know that it is only a parent's love that, you could, that could keep you from just, you know, selling them for a good steak. Okay? Right? It's love. And that's the same thing with God. It's in love He predestined us. So that's the first part, okay? It was out of love that He did this, nothing else, that we would be adopted to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, why? 
according to the purpose of his will. It was not random. He had a plan. So when he chose us, he chose us according to a plan. According to his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now here's where I got real excited. And Crystal probably knows where I'm going because I tested it out on her. She wasn't as excited about me, so I don't know how far along in the Christian life she is. But, um, so, but, but here's the thing, okay? It says... It's to the praise of His glorious grace. He adopted us in love to be sons of God to the praise of His glorious grace. Now, let me, let me reframe that. He did it for His glory. That's why. Now, that's the easy part, okay? But here's the part that kind of don't... I, I, and I, folks, I, I read something that kind of tied into this, okay? I started thinking about God's grace, we have been saved by grace through faith. Now, I have argued in the past that grace and faith are different. I have argued in the past that grace is God's orientation towards us. That grace is not something like a gift. The gift is what? It's faith. Faith is the gift that we get. We receive it because of God's grace. So God's grace is unmerited favor. We didn't earn it. And that grace is His orientation to us. Hopefully I'm not muddy in the waters here. This is what I got really excited about. Oftentimes when we think of God's grace, we think of God's saving grace at the moment that we are converted in to Christians, right? And certainly God's grace is evident there. But God's grace, God's saving grace, did not begin when we trusted Christ. God's grace was from the beginning of time. So you see, okay, so here's the thing. If God's grace begins at the moment of our conversion, we could somehow do mental gymnastics and thinking, well, see, it's our it was our work, it was our efforts, it was all of our good deeds, right? But that's not when God's saving grace began. It began before the foundations of the earth. That unmerited favor was before we were ever even created. And, that, and, and, and this is why I got all excited. It makes it all make even that much more sense. That's why that we have absolutely no leg to stand on. That it has everything to do with God's grace, God's orientation to us, His unmerited favor. Now, I got really excited about that. Maybe I just was in a good mood that day. But it's to the praise of His glory and that glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Folks, if, there, if you have no other reason to worship and to praise God, if you are a Christian this morning, that is reason enough. That is reason enough. So as we read through 
the New Testament. I mean, seriously, that light bulb pops on. And as I'm reading through the New Testament, every time I read about God's grace now, I'm thinking, man, that was evident before the lights ever got turned on. God's saving grace was there. His orientation to us was already one of favor. God favored us for salvation. Verse 7, in Him, this is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. So again, God's orientation towards us, that unmerited favor, then causes action. The action is, is that man is sinful, man must be saved, only by shed blood can he be saved, so he gives his son to save us. That's the action that is produced by God's grace. When we say that we have grace towards someone, that sh- show them grace, right? That doesn't mean much unless there's some action that's produced out of that, right? And so there is a kindness there. There is a love there. Oftentimes grace is tied with mercy. When we tell somebody, you know, show them grace. Show them grace. What that means is they don't deserve it, but show it to them anyway. Show them favor. Love them. In Him we have redemption through His blood, through the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. We're going to pause there. So, God, in love, predetermines, chooses, elects to save a group of humanity for all time. So from the moment that God creates Adam to the moment that he, of Christ's uh, return, there's a group of individuals that have been chosen to be saved. And it's by His grace, not of anything that we've done, And the action that is poured out is that Christ's blood is spilt to pay for our sins. And then we are gifted, which we're going to find out in chapter 2, we are gifted faith. Okay? And it says that He has lavished this upon us in all wisdom and insight. What has He lavished upon us? And I believe that it's love and forgiveness. That's what He has lavished upon us. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purposes. So making known us to the mystery of His will. I was reading um, a little bit of background on the city of Ephesus because I'm always... I'm always interested in um, 
and in, in when Paul especially uses the term mystery, and that comes up a lot actually in the New Testament, the mystery of this, the mystery of that, and he uses the term mystery, and so I was reading a little bit about that phrase, the mystery of his will. Now, I have told you before that this is no secret that I believe, and most commentators believe, that when he says the mystery of his will, what he's referring to that is the mystery of redemption. Okay, It's this mystery that, that based on nothing that we have done, God would save us through the shed blood of his son. Right, So that's the mystery that we're talking about. The reason why I was fascinated with this is because I wanted to know if it had anything to do with who Paul was writing to. And it does, I believe, okay, or the commentators, I should say, believe, is that the commentators believe the commentator believes that in Ephesus, Artemis, okay, Artemis was a Greek god. Artemis was sort of the god, the, it was the 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 uh, the mascot of the town, if you will, okay, all right. So it was the mascot of the town, and he, uh, th- they were a, they basically worshipped him, right? Well, they believed a lot in mystery, so astrology and all these things were a huge deal to those people there in Ephesus, a huge deal to those individuals in Ephesus, and mystery, mystery played a huge role in that, all right? Mystery played a huge role, and so what they were very concerned with was they they were very concerned about astrological signs and the stars and all these sorts of things in the city of Ephesus. And so when Paul writes about mystery and predestination, predetermination, all right, he is, he is speaking to those things. He is speaking to those things, all right? And so in this case, all right, in this case, when he is writing to them, he is announcing to those individuals, all right, that you do not have to read the stars, you do not have to look upon any of those things, all right, in order to know what is true and what is false, you need to look to Christ, all right, because that's where the mystery is. The mystery is in the shed blood of Christ and in redemption. It's not in the stars. It's not in some astrological sign. It's not in the temple of Artemis. It's in nothing like that. It's in the redemption according to God's will. And so in many cases, or in in this case specifically, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Ephesus who were dealing with this on a daily basis. So when he talks about mystery, it's it's not just murder she wrote, okay? He's not just writing something just to kind of make it uh, more palatable. He's writing this because he is speaking to, a, speaking to the cultural context. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And that's how we know that it's redemption, because this mystery, okay, according to his will, was set forth in Christ. Okay, it's a byproduct of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And then here's the final statement, sort of answers all of this. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This predestination or predetermination, this election or this choosing of individuals was not just about salvation. God ordains all things. You may be unsure about tomorrow. 
You may be unsure about tomorrow. You may be unsure where you're going to eat for lunch. Let alone things that are going to happen in the future. But God has this down to the very crossed T and dotted I. There is nothing that surprises him. When it says here that he has in love predestined us, all right, this, this letter is to confirm our lives in Christ, and our life in Christ begins, all right, begins and ends with Christ. But we have to remember that it is also something that was, it was in the beginning. In fact, it was before the beginning, if you will. But it's not just that. It's everything. Our entire lives have been ordained by the Lord. The water pipe breaking was a surprise to us. It was not to God. It wasn't. UK beating Tennessee yesterday was a surprise to everyone. It was not to the Lord. Nothing is trivial when you think of it as it has been ordained by God. Nothing. Now, every bit of this is due to His glory and for His glory. All of it. Every bit of it is for His glory. But I want to I counter one argument against this. And maybe some of you all are thinking about this a little bit. So Donna says, okay, Brother Chris, if God predetermines, even in love, even in love, those who will be saved and those who won't, and if He has predetermined and ordained everything, then don't we live in a fatalistic and a deterministic world? I mean, Donna's use of the vocabulary was phenomenal here, okay? Just pop the map. But Donna's concerned about this, right? Do my choices matter then? If God's ordained this, and God has predetermined this, not just seen it from afar, but has like laid it in motion, every single thing, does what we do even matter? It's a good question, Donna. It's a great question. And it's a question that philosophers love to mess around with. Now, I like philosophy. I've taken a variety of courses in philosophy because I just I like the mental gymnastics, okay? And you start getting into that a little bit in theology. It's a good question, and I think that it's a logical question. But here's the problem with that. Here's the problem. Is that that kind of thought process, all right, is taking God's will out of the picture. It's taking God's will out of the picture. It's taking God's sovereignty 
out of the picture. We do not measure things, we do not judge things, and we do not do things, act on things based on a philosophy. We base it on a theology that God's Word is perfect and inerrant. So we don't start with our own logic and our own philosophy. We start with God's Word. And here's what God's Word says. Is that yes, God ordains all things, even the electrons rotating around an atom 500 years from now. And God's Word also says that your actions do matter. And that you are responsible for your actions. That's what God's Word says. You might say, which verse? Pick a book and read it. Okay? It's all the way throughout. When David sinned, when David sinned with Bathsheba, God did not look in a mirror, if he could, and say, oh, I did wrong by causing David to sin with Bathsheba. No, he looked upon David and said, you sinner. And he did it through a prophet. Because it was David's actions. When Judas, when Judas betrays Christ for 30 pieces of silver, God does not drop his head and say, oh, woe is me, I created him that way. God was not surprised when Judas betrayed him. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. But he didn't say, well, it's my fault because I created him that way. No, it was Judas's response to his own sin. And you say, well, that just philosophically doesn't make sense because Judas couldn't help himself. No, Judas could help himself because the Bible says he could. Does that make sense? Because the primary arguments in this, about this, is going to be going, it's going to go into the deep waters of philosophy and logic and say, you know, then, then we live in this fatalistic society and really what we do doesn't matter. And then I want to tell you is, no, it matters because God says it matters. It matters because God says it matters. Your actions matter because God says they matter. There is a concept called deism. It's a very old concept. And deism is the idea that there is a God and that there is a God that created all things. But when He created all things, it's like He flipped the switch, but then let everything go, and that God is blinded to what's going to happen next. God knows no more what's going to happen next than you and I. Because all He did was flip the switch and then let creation have its way. It's the divine watchmaker philosophy, if anybody wants to read into that. Voltaire was big into it. 
But that is not our God. And that is, by the way, what many people believe. Many people are deists. They don't know they are, but they are. In fact, many people in the church are deists. They believe that God has a blind eye to what you're doing and to what you're going to do. You are not surprising God with your sin, and you're not surprising God with your good deeds. And it's not just because God has a crystal ball that he rubs and is able to see the future. It's because it is all a part of his plan. Now, why does any of that matter to this? Why does any of that matter? Is that when we follow Christ, when we commit our lives to Christ, to following Christ, and to living our life out in Christ, we are doing what God has designed us to do from the foundations of the world. Remember, Why did he choose us in the first place? To be blameless and holy before him. You are fulfilling your calling when you are walking faithfully with Christ. And when we fail, When we fail in that, God is not wringing his hands. God is not wiping the sweat off his brow and in anxiety because you sinned. God is not up there nervous and fraught, hoping that you're not going to do it again. God is majestic on his throne, knowing all things because he put all things in motion, loving you through every bit of it. Because the same love that caused him to choose you to be adopted as sons and daughters of God is the same love that lifts you up when you have fallen down. It's the same love. God's love doesn't change. It's the same love that's going to be there when you are anxious and worried about what tomorrow is going to be. It's the same love that is there when your kids are driving you batty. It is the same love that is going to be there When you are lying in that bed, taking your final breaths, you have the comfort in knowing that God has numbered my days and every one of them are for a purpose. And not one of them are wasted. Not one of them are wasted. You can trust that. And so for us, that means that we can live life with more freedom and peace and joy and all those things we talked about during Christmas. It allows us to live with that 
and not have to worry about tomorrow. I find it funny, and just to tell you as I close, you know, when we talk about, um, when I tell you how this kind of was like a light bulb, you know, I love a good light bulb when it comes to, when it comes to the Bible. And I, I know you all do too. Like you, and I think I've even gotten text messages from Christy, like, I read this, you know, I'm like, boom, you know, it's like, what, an emerald, that cook, you know, it's like, bam, right? Like throwing the spice on stuff. It's kind of like that, right? In fact, I got one from Brittany the other day. She texted me, I don't even know what it was, but she texted me about something. I read the text. I just don't remember what it was. And she, she, she was like, you could tell she had that bam moment, right? Like she threw on some spice to that thing, right? And that happens when you're reading through that. And, and, as, and this kind of hits me. When it first hit me, I was like, man, this just opens up everything in Scripture to make it more, make more sense. And then in, in, the, in the Gospels, when, when Jesus is telling his disciples, why are you worried? Why are you worried about what tomorrow's going to bring? You know those birds in the air and the lilies of the field? God's got that. God has that. And the reason he has that is because he ordained it from the foundations of the earth. It's fascinating. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we picture God, because I know I did, okay, and I'm not that weird, all right, is that I know that at sometimes I had this image of God that when something went wonky in my life, that God was kind of like this utility guy, like the maintenance man at an apartment building. You know, when somebody calls, well, I got a water leak or I got a toilet that's not running or, or still running or something like that. And he's like running from, from, from apartment building to apartment building trying to fix all these problems, right? And he's just, and I, sometimes I feel like I had that kind of mentality of God is that God's like always on his feet, always moving around, trying to fix all of our problems as they're, that's not God. Because even the problems are a part of his plan. Nothing is out of his plan. None of it. And so when something goes wonky in your life and you don't know what to do and you don't know what's going to happen, God does. He does. I'm not saying that that fixes everything. You still have to do stuff, right? You have to still make things happen. But what I'm telling you is that God sees it, he knows it, and he's going to love you through it. Debbie, when your, when your mama fell the other day, I knew that you were a little bit concerned. You could tell it over the phone, and then, no, it was, it was serious. It's a whole lot different when a loved one is in that kind of circumstance if you don't believe God's in control. But Debbie does believe God's in control. And Debbie's mama believes that God's in control. And even more than that, that even that is a part of his plan. Why? We don't know. All we know is to the praise of his glorious grace. At some point, that's what it's about. It also causes us to look at our issues a little bit differently. Just a little bit differently. When something goes wonky in life, what are you teaching me, God? How can I learn from this? How will this challenge, because that's what we, what, that's what, there's no problems, there's just challenges, right? That's what a good supervisor says. How does this challenge 
how is this going to make me follow Christ more effectively? It's all part of his plan. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us and your grace to us. Lord, I pray that um, as we walk through life, as we commit ourselves to, to living more faithfully, Lord, that we would do so with the knowledge that absolutely everything is going according to your plan. We do not have to worry. We do not have to fret. We just need to live and live faithfully. Help us do that. Help us to do that. Help us to believe your word. Help us to trust your word. And help us to be obedient. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.